Hello, and thanks for your patience. We recorded Romaniacs a little later than usual this week, so you might be listening on Friday night or Saturday morning, as the specials put it, instead of first thing on Friday. Normal service will be resumed next week. I'm Dorian Linsky. This time we'll be looking at Boris Johnson's European tour, plus the aftermath of the Yellow Hammer leak, Pretty Patel upgrades the hostile immigration environment to the batshit crazy paranoid environment, and much, much more. First of our regulars this week is Ros Taylor, editor of the LSE Brexit blog. Hi, Ros. How are you? I'm very well. You've just come back from holiday in the EU. Yeah. <laughs> um, we haven't seen that many people tweeting, it's the last time we're going to be able to, to do this so, so easily. Is it, is it because people don't want to think that and they think, well, we could still avert it? Yeah, they don't want to seem defeatist, basically. That's, uh, I, I thought about that. And as, as we went through the arrivals from the EU, you know, customs channel, I, I teared up a little bit, but I thought, don't do it. It might still not happen. But I, I kept I kept getting quite tearful because there were lots of EU flags in the resort where I was, was staying and um, that was a bit sad. And also, the worst thing was, I had a cab driver who was very pro-Brexit and we had this long discussion about the EU's failings in French, which I won't bore you with but because he didn't know a lot about it, to be honest. I'd like to say he did, but he didn't. And, <laughs> and, and that, was, that was a bit distressing. Yeah, cab drivers... <laughs> Also joining us, it's star of telly, stage and screen, including Emma Thompson's Last Christmas, which is coming out next Easter, I think. Um, Ingrid Oliver. Hello, Ingrid. Hi. That's got some Brexit in it, by the way. Has it? Yeah. Spoiler alert. Everything's got a little bit of Brexit. Oh, yeah, I will only do projects that have some kind of <laughs> a Brexit element to them. Um, did you enjoy Angela Merkel's stoicism in the face of Boris Johnson's visit? She's uh, got a, she's got a good, she had a good face on. She did have a good face on. Do you know, it, re- it really made me laugh, sort of, uh, because it reminded me of my dad, who is German. Uh, and when I was a kid, and I would be like, oh, Zaddy, I'm a princess. And he'd be like, yeah, 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 no, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, of course you're a princess. Why, why stop there? Why not be queen of the fucking world? Um, he wouldn't say fucking world, obviously. Um, as in, it was he was indulging me very much in the same way that Angela Merkel, because she's a grown-up, um, was indulging Boris Johnson in his fantasies of, yeah, we can get it sorted in the next 30 days. And that produced the Daily Mail front page, the, the unusually pro-German, can we do it? Yeah, we can. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Bob die builder, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and at least, well, at least it wasn't like Achtung, Achtung, let's get the Germans raus, which is normally <laughs> yeah. that's normally the tone of it. Um, but that 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 article was quite annoying. It, it it basically reported everything that had happened in a completely different way, in in the sort of sense of it, it, they said, you know, Mrs. Merkel. Uh, said, you know, we definitely will find a solution in the next 30 days, which is sort of what she said, if you don't take into account, like, context or tone or grammar or the conditional tense or any of those she things. Much, it was pretty much like, yeah, knock, yeah, knock yourself out. Yeah, that's like, exactly that, what it was. Like, that's the deadline. Sure. Give it a go. Why not? Um, yeah, so that was, it was it was a, an article that had all the right words, but not necessarily in the right order. That's the Daily Mail. Yeah. This week's special guest is our first rock and roll Romaniac, Guy Garvey, a singer and lyricist with the Mercury Prize and Brit Award-winning band Elbow, a long-running six-music DJ and dangerously close to being certified a national treasure. He's very much on the Romaniac's wavelength. Elbow wrote the BBC's music for the 2012 Olympics, and Guy described Brexit and Trump as the biggest disasters our generation has seen. Hello, Guy. Welcome to Romaniac. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, we've asked Romanian musicians before, but they've, they've politely declined because they don't feel confident about um, you know, doing a, a podcast for an hour and, you know, and, and sort of stepping into the den. Um, have you been boning up on the backstop? Because we've got, basically, there's going to be like a 10-question questionnaire no. start. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here to represent the confused and ill-informed. <laughs> so you said that, uh, that damning phrase about Brexit and Trump in 2017. Um, has it turned out even worse than you, you thought? 
Um, you and I, Ingrid, talked about this at a party about 18 months ago. Yeah. And even since then, my thinking on it keeps changing. It keeps changing. And where my personal focus is and where I can be of any use is not the thing that's going through my head. It's sort of like, how do I navigate it? And what's the best way to think about it? How, what's the best way to be constructive where it's concerned in my own life? Um, the Trump show is just um, so appalling that uh, 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 it's very difficult to, to keep up with. Uh, the Brexit show, I've come to this weird sort of... If you had an old Mark uh, II Ford on a motorway uh, and the wheels weren't tracked properly, it would vibrate crazily and it'd be a really uncomfortable ride until you got to about 70 and then suddenly it'd get really smooth again. And this intensity and this focus from both sides of the argument uh, and this much spotlight on a daily basis on the politics of this country, I suddenly thought, this is really healthy. And this should have been this intense for a lot longer and we wouldn't be in this mess. And I suddenly thought, I wonder if we can somehow, regardless of what happens, keep that energy up. Yeah, maybe it just takes an emergency to get people focused. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it, from watching Borgen, it's always like that. Great show. <laughs> Danish politics should be simple, there's hardly any of them, but <laughs> really, really intense. So a bit of Borgen in our daily diet, I think, would be cod liver oil for the nation. Um, Elbow's new album, Giants of All Sizes, is out on October the 10th. Uh, we'll talk about that later. You've described it as an angry old blue lament, which finds its salvation in family, friends, the band and new life. How much, to the nearest percentage point, Brexit is there? In this in this album, how much how much do you think it was written in the shadow of events? Well, this and the previous record, even though the previous record's a lot more positive because it was surrounding the uh, imminent arrival of my son, so it is really bright and, and full of sort of uh, nervous anticipation, but then joy, you know. And also, we felt like we were off in some kind of uh, escape from from Brexit and. It's kind of mentioned in a couple of the songs really quite directly, you know. Um, but then this time, this, this sort of background hum of insecurity uh, and uncertainty and bewilderment, actually, um, is all over the record. Uh, if I was to give it a percentage point, whatever background radiation is. <laughs> <laughs> and No Deal is a particularly relevant issue for, for bands, and you're touring Europe in November after supposed Brexit Day. Mm. How do... Um, how do bands and, and tour managers prepare? Is there like a plan A and a plan B? I was just discussing that with, with Lewis, our, our press guy. Um, and I've just come off holiday in France, like literally yesterday. Um, we've got something in place whereby as much as all the powers that be know in terms of border security, etc., we have cover letters. Um, I, I, you know, it's... I, I, immediately, I'm not sure. I'm not actually worried about the long-term future. Uh, for young artists, I was, and I went and spoke to some people that I know and sort of asked them, what's it going to be like for visas for musicians? Um, and I've, I've been assured that no politician wants to ally themselves with charging musicians to tour Europe or the UK. So that was so important in, in uh, Elbow's fortunes, and it is so important. I'd say, actually, going abroad and playing abroad when we were 18... Um, kept us together trying to be a band for another two or three years. It was It's really sort of inspiring to go to somewhere completely new and 
do you think? And I think it's an important part of any artist's development to be able to do that. And I don't think anyone's going to stand in its way. And any sort of pro music thing that's that's happened in the U UK, it's like nobody wants to be seen to be anti music. And mm. I think it's the same in Europe. Oh well, that's a bit of good news. That's our one bit of good news for the show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have more with Guy throughout the show after these quick reminders from Ingrid. The nights are drawing in and London's glittering theatreland prepares to welcome the crowds for another autumn of timeless artistry. Cats, Starlight, Phantom, Les Mis, my personal favourite. And now Romaniacs Live, which returns to the Leicester Square Theatre on Monday the 23rd of September for a dazzling evening of Brexit-related group therapy, top quality analysis and definitely not a power cut like we had last time. Dorian, Roz and Ian Dump will be your panel, plus we are announcing an exciting special guest very soon, so get your tickets quickly. They're on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and they're going fast. Our Patreon backers got first dibs last week and a discount too. But don't worry, you can get that discount as well when you sign up to back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Choose your tier and you can get Romaniacs mugs and t-shirts too, plus our monthly extra podcast, Ask Romaniacs. New episode soon. It's the best way to keep us at fighting strength. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Also, can we draw your attention to the Great Northern Stop Brexit Conference taking place in Leeds on Saturday the 7th of September? They're going to be fixing Brexit and repairing broken Britain in a busy day of debate with speakers including Gavin Esler, uh, Will Hutton, Hilary Benn, Femi Oluwole and Lord Heseltine. It's the Reading Stroke Leeds Festival of Remain. Get your tickets at leedsforeurope.org. Thanks, Ingrid. Now, from Paris to Berlin and every disco he gets in, his heart is pumping for love. Boris Johnson went to meet Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron this week in the much-trumpeted visit to tell the Europeans what's what. The stated purpose was to cut off the backstop. Instead, as we mentioned earlier, Merkel told Johnson he has 30 days to sort it out, which means she's definitely promising that it'll all be fine in 30 days. Rods, we predicted this would be a sort of symbolic visit um, designed so that Johnson could kind of uh, come home and blame the dastardly Europeans. Um, is, that, is that job done as far as he's concerned? Well, we got that wrong, didn't we? Because it turns out he's come home and said that the dastardly Euros will budge. Um, of course, that's bollocks. Um, they're not going to budge at all uh, if you read between the lines but as Ingrid was saying earlier but nonetheless he's got what he wanted which is some nice photo opportunities and fundamentally this was all about optics I think if you contrast the images that came out of this European tour with the typical May tour which was basically May standing looking strained next to Angela Merkel and looking very ill at ease alongside Emmanuel Macron and looking miserable staring into the distance being ignored by other European leaders. This looks great. He looks, you know, he looks cheerful. He looks rambustious, and he's uh, trying to tell us that they uh, might budge. And actually, that's rubbish. It's all been thrown back onto us to find a solution to the backstop, which we can't do because we've spent three years trying to find a solution to the backstop, and we're not going to find it in the next thirty days. So, is it just burnishing his own kind of image as like the sunny can do? Yeah, exactly. All about optics, exactly. Because things were getting a bit nasty, we were getting a bit scared. Maybe some of us have no deal. Not all of us. Some of us love it, obviously. But uh, some of us were getting a bit scared. But now, you know, oh, it's all right. Cheerful Boris bumbling his way around the European capitals. Oh, Christ. Sorry, I can't go. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, basically, he, it's a win-win for him. He, it's bought him some time. Ingrid, Merkel's in the, in the twilight of her career. Is she just... She's just in a kind of like not my problem mate zone. No, because she's a, she's a grown up and she's a sensible person and she's 
uh, she has integrity and I don't think for a second that she would just go, oh, do you know what, fuck it, I'm off anyway. She absolutely, you know, the EU is part of her legacy and I don't think she wants to see it it's, it's crumble at the last minute um, just because of, a, you know, she, she just because she's suddenly gone, oh, I can't be bothered anymore. She just, she wouldn't do that. Um, but interestingly, I mean, you know, that what was interesting, all jokes aside about the 30-day the limit that she has apparently set, which was always there anyway, and what it has done, and what I'm slightly worried about, is that it, what it has done it is allowed Boris Johnson to come back now and say to, to you know to Parliament domestically here in Britain, go look, I've been given the, I've been given this chance. I'm going. I want a deal. Let me give me a chance to sort it out. And already some Tory backbenchers have said, you know, they wouldn't in a vote of no confidence situation, they wouldn't vote against the government because they they want to give him that opportunity now. That's the narrative that he's coming back with, um, even though nothing has changed. It's about narrative and perception. And he's he's now saying, look, you know, we've got this window now. And how did the Macron meeting go? Macron has billed himself erotically as the hard boy of the EU. Mm. The hard boys <laughs> of the EU used to DJ at trade in the 90s. <laughs> um, and briefed much more aggressively that no deal was going to happen and that there's not much to be, to be done about it. I mean, you know, ultimately he said the same thing as, 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 as Merkel did, um, which is, yeah, no, sure, knock yourself out. You've got 30 days. Um, but I, I do find I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of Macron either. I did find the optics, as Ros was saying, well, it, they were quite funny. The ones were with uh, Boris with Merkel. He was sort of standing on a balcony. She had a glass of wine. He had a gin and tonic. They were laughing. Uh, with Merkel, there was a lot of uh, dick, dick swinging going on. Sorry, with Macron. Yeah, he he um, he. Uh, there was a picture of them walking into a building, and Macron had sort of put his hand quite high up on. Boris's back, as if to say, I'm the alpha dog, and 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 Boris had sort of almost dislocated his arm to try and go <laughs> higher on on Macron's back, almost cupping his head, um, and the, all that alpha dog macho stuff is just I find it incredibly tedious. Well, there's a you know I noticed at at, uh, at the, the Q award ceremony that there was a certain etiquette between who walked in first, and it was kind of like the it was like after you very politely, but then the bigger art the person who goes in last appears to be the bigger artist. So there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of body language. I've what never you noticed think? this. Have you not? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's very it was very very interesting. It was because right. it's kind of like the person who arrived just before it starts looks like the bigger act. I'll tell you a story. So uh, when we re-recorded Feed the World last. Um, I was invited. I was very, very pleased to be counting amongst them. None of One Direction or, or the other pop stars that were there had any idea who I was. Uh, and in fact, when it appeared on uh, Gogglebox, um, the two Scouse gay guys were watching it, and I came on the screen, and one of them went, "Who the fuck's that?" <laughs> so, so I very much felt like I, I, out of place. But it's really interesting how they do it. And Bob and Midge don't allow you any kind of management or assistance or anything like that, so there's no entourage. So you've got all Britain's biggest pop stars, like dogs in the park, mixing amongst each other. And I won't name names because I'm a gentleman, but the drum booth became most famous pop star room. Just just nobody, like, you know, stood guard or anything like that, but the most famous pop stars ended up sitting in the drum booth on their own. Interesting. So, what did you think of uh, of, of, of of the Macron Johnson? I'm afraid I've not seen it because I've just returned from France on on other and very important great holiday business. fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong but, with um, you? Macron sort of um, the the sort of um, wandering among his people with a microphone thing. It reminds me of that sort of image. It's like uh, 
he's got something of the modern soothsayer in his head, isn't hasn't he? It's like every word is gold, you know, and it's just a bit boring. It's like I remember as uh, as I remember Kanye West's nursery teacher said, he says he is not he is not restrained by excessive humility. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, the Brexit press seems to think that, that Boris Johnson has this magic Heineken ability to reach parts of the electorate that other politicians can't. Um, how, how does his shtick fly around your neck of the woods? How do I feel about him? Just like in, yeah, just but also in, in your kind of... I'd be really happy with him. Uh, Marginalised to where Portillo ended up, hosting a, a, a very slow, entertaining, informative documentary every now and again. <laughs> uh, he's, um, yeah, it'd be the, the Churchill years with Boris Johnson. He's just wandering down a corridor. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, it's mind-boggling his rise to popularity, and I've not heard anybody from the Have I Got News for You team interviewed uh, that hasn't been blamed for it at some point. I have to say, I never enjoyed that program. It always seemed too sort of archly smug to me, uh, and yeah. For him to go to this, look at look at this rather odd, from a different century politician. He's real, you know, and and now he's the most powerful man in the country, and no doubt enjoying the trappings of that as we speak. Um, is terrifying. It's terrifying, and the whole popularity contest politics that have, uh, that led to us. Well, you know, Cameron's popularity contest was gambling the whole farm to get into power, and here we are. Uh, and the same popularity contest has got Trump into power in it, and, and the same with Mr Johnson. And I find the whole situation terrifying, and, and, and I don't see how it's reversible when people are only fed the news they want to hear or read. I think it's... Uh, I, I don't see a way out of it, as as, as Elbow's latest record reflects. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bleak. <laughs> Can't say, oh, people go, oh, can I see Elbow? I just love the, yeah, the, the uplift. And it's like, no, it's the no way out to it. <laughs> it does feel like it's bewildering. It's bewildering. Um, uh, yeah, it, it has me shaking my head on a daily basis. I, I was just going to bring it back round to the themes of the record, but that seems very self serving. <laughs> we will do the themes of the record, but first, more terrifying stuff uh, regarding No Deal, the Operation Yellowhammer leak, which had the government denouncing its own research as Project Fear. The government focused on who leaked it, not the content, and they said it was out of date. Um, did they manage to kind of put the lid on that one? Or I mean, I don't know. I don't know what effect that leak because it was very. It was. It was a. It was a. It was a kind of a scary good old leak. leak. It was a proper leak. <laughs> um, you know, and it was from based on Sunday Times. And um, what effect do you think it's had, Ross? I think it's um, just waited a few people to think twice i don't think it was part of the uh, part of the plan uh it's very difficult because at the moment i feel that no matter how much people are told that no deal is a bad thing some of them still want it anyway and uh, some of them just say bring it on and it's a terrible i obviously i don't want no deal to happen and yet a very small part of my brain says they're not going to believe it until it happens. They're just going to ca keep on accusing us of Project Fear and of lying. And until they actually feel the effect, they're not going to believe it. And that part of my brain is, is, is fighting. It's getting larger and larger. And, it's, it's, and I'm struggling to keep it under control. And I'm struggling to keep the 
driving force being to stop new no deal under control because i i guess i'm being dragged to much against my will into this scenario where it's it's got to be no deal and but for me it's got to be no deal because otherwise we just simply will not persuade this hardcore of people that it's a bad idea it's a really strange thing to want to be wrong yeah. Isn't it? Exactly. And, and, and I'm loath to trust anyone who isn't conflicted in some way over the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, because to to stand guard and say, this is terrible, don't let this happen, mm. uh, and to ring as many panic bells as you possibly can, mm. um, and then to want to be wrong about that <laughs> in the eventuality mm. that the worst happens, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, but then I pull myself together and I think, and I remember that I'm on a really expensive NHS drug and I'm not due for the next course in January and for God's sake, we're not going to have no deal. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 you have to think, you have to think pragmatically. <laughs> and I suppose in some ways it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter if we believe, if the public at large believes that no deal is going to be bad or not. Because our politicians are being briefed, presumably, by the civil service. Mm. They know exactly how bad it's going to be. Mm. So the idea that they could they could still do it, knowing, and they know, um, in some ways it doesn't matter if the public believe them. It, they have to take ultimate responsibility. But that's a strange thing, if they think, well, we'll do it anyway, and then still believe that you're not going to pay an electoral price. Mm. Yeah, that's the for paradox. seriously damaging country that seems like if somebody's saying there is a risk of like i don't know like food riots or whatever traditionally you would think a politician would go i don't that won't help my re-election chances mm. um but they I mean, seem to go on anyway I, and ideally you want a politician who um wants to do the right thing by the country oh, come, come. no i think it's, it's gone so far the other way that um there was that phrase not afraid of making the tough decisions that that phrase was being banded around about a decade ago, suddenly everybody was saying it in the electoral pledges. Um, and if you read that phrase to yourself and think about it, it says, I'm not afraid to make the unpopular choice. And then you start thinking, when does the unpopular choice become the undemocratic choice? Because it's not what's best for most people. And at the same time of this, in uh, the private sector, you've got Ryanair deliberately putting out negative stories about its own business, that they're going to charge a pound for the toilets, standing-only flights and things like that. Deliberately put these stories out, knowing that there'll be scandalous front pages on... So then you've suddenly got a business model that says, does it matter if people like you? Mm. And as mm. long as the advertising's there, as long as you, you maintain the power. Uh, and, and that's gone over into politics in a weird way. The whole mindset is, well, how important is it that people like you or that you do the right thing? You know, it's a game to these people. This all comes back to me for to, to how different things would be if we had a good opposition leader and a strong opposition. I agree. We would not be here now because Boris Johnson would be too scared of the electorate rejecting him. Uh, we might not even got to the stage in any way. He would be too scared to even think about having a general election. The only reason that he's prepared to flirt with the idea is because he thinks Corbyn rightly, that Corbyn is so weak and his appeal is so small. So, Well, Corbyn has written to all Romani leaders, including Joe Swinson, uh, and we'll meet them next week, and this kind of row over the proposed government national unity seems to be cooling. I'm not sure whether there's actually any reality to that. Um, Guy, where are you on Corbyn? You were enthusiastic back in 2015 when he won the leadership. Where where are you are you now? I'm Disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> um, what could he do 
to alleviate that disappointment? I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that he's the right man. I, I, I didn't vote Labour for the first time in the last European elections uh, in my life. You know, it's a. I agree with exactly what's just been said. He's not pre presented enough opposition. To say that he used to hang around with uh, idols of mine and that he was constantly with, you know, in the same bracket as Tony Benn. Um, he's picked up the wrong sort of bits of how to be <laughs> historically left and forward thinking. Um, yeah, he's just not the man for the job. And, uh, yeah, and did disappointed. Any, did any of us, because um, it was a crazy week, I think I was on holiday and when everyone was talking about the government nationality, so I just kind of bowed out of the whole thing. But it never seemed to... I, Stephen Bush on the New Statesman podcast just just laughed it off and just said, what was everybody thinking? How did people think this was going to be a sort of magic bullet? Um, did, was that just one of those things where you just look back and go, I guess that was... That was a thing. That was the, you know, kind of like the hysteria that we're getting as we're approaching October 31st. Was that just a manifestation of that? Well, like, maybe try this. Well, I think, I think it's partly that, and it's also things like when the Citizens' Assembly idea was mooted, or there's all these... Mm. Uh, I, think, I think you have to explore the idea completely and fully in the press in some ways, because people need to understand what it is that you're talking about. And, and I think also that people are just desperate for a way out, so they seize on, you seize on something. You go, that's a thing that could work, right, guys? Mm. Uh, <clears throat> because it seems mental, and, and in these times, that's what's needed in some ways. Um, so... I, I don't blame people for doing that. I'm desperate for a solution, and so I, I can understand why. But the, the intrinsic problem in Brexit itself is that it's almost impossible to coalesce around any single idea. So, you know, government and national unity is just that. It's an idea, and I don't, I don't know how, how it will work. Um, but, you know, but you never know. Crazy times. Well, we'll round off with um, Priti Patel's announcement that freedom of movement will end overnight uh, on the 31st of October. Um, is this supposed to achieve anything apart from, you know, the typical Home Secretary posturing of looking like the hard, the hard boy, or in this case, the hard girl of, uh, of British politics? Uh, but again, but it's, again it's, it's very bad. It's very, it's very bad PR, bad, bad form. It's because Boris Johnson, himself, Boris Johnson himself in his opening speech to Parliament said he was guaranteeing the rights of EU citizens uh, and beyond, you know, uh, October 31st for the next couple of years at least certainly and then also we then had this Australian points based system that was going to be people who earned over a certain amount of money would be welcome and now we've got the thing of actually no sorry 1st of November that's it you're all going home it's like well what exactly are you t doing what is going on and I think you know the message it sends to businesses who have no because they're the ones <laughs> employers are the ones that have to enforce that uh, you know, if they're employing people, uh, EU citizens, that they they have to make it a call, presumably, to what to fire people on the day on on first of November. I don't know, so it's pla it's placing a lot of undue pressure on on businesses, but also it's it's unforgivable what it's doing, presumably, to the mental health of people who don't know where they stand, mm. i.e., EU citizens. Ross, they, they were kind of spinning it as this only affects people trying to come into to Britain after that date. Um, how does it? How does it affect people who are already here? Well, in theory, it shouldn't affect them that much. In practice, it will, because there is no effective way, they will have no way of telling who came into the country after the 31st of October and who came into the country before. So everyone, therefore, will be in a position to have to prove their... Uh, their, their right to be in the country and their right to work and their right to existence here. 
that is the fundamental problem when you haven't been keeping when you haven't got a clear idea of who is in the country and we found out only this week that they actually underestimated the number of EU migrants in this country by quite a lot. Uh, they've overestimated the number of um, other non-EU migrants and underestimated the number of EU migrants but that shows how they haven't got a handle on it now and they're not going to get a handle on it overnight either. Time for Gone in 60 Seconds. This is where we give one of our panellists a favourite lever argument and they dismantle, debunk and destruct it in a mere minute until there's nothing left but ash and tears. <laughs> this week it's Ros's turn and she's going to do No Deal is the only true Brexit. It might not have been on the ballot paper, but it's the only one that obeys the will of the people. Ros, 60 Seconds starts now. There is no such thing as a true Brexit. That is at the heart of the matter. There is no such thing as Brexit even, because no one has ever been able to agree on exactly what it is. Uh, the rot started when it changed from a verb into a noun, um, leaving the EU versus Brexit, because we cannot define that noun now, and we certainly couldn't before the referendum. Um, we'll have to do a deal anyway of some sort after we leave the EU, so no deal is the only true Brexit is fundamentally meaningless for that reason too. But... You don't get any of the supposed benefits of Brexit, the freedom to make your own trade deals, the freedom from EU regulations, basically, unless you cut yourself completely loose from the single market and the customs union. But Brexiteers were not honest or knowledgeable enough to say that from the outset, and they never thought about the Northern Ireland problem at all. No deal has a superficial appeal because it appears to be clean. Uh, it means the person discussing it doesn't have to engage with boring, complex things like tariffs, and uh, and it's a, it's a leap of faith. Uh, it, and uh, the real value is that you never, it means you never have to define what Brexit is. Bang. 60 seconds. <laughs> Our guest this week is Guy Garvey of Elbow and Paid Up Romaniac. We're going to play the first track from their new album, Giants of All Sizes, which is out on 11th of October. It's called Dexter and Sinister. And Guy called it a great big bewildered question dealing with my feelings on Brexit, the loss of family and friends and the general sense of disaffection you see all around at the moment. Um, tell us a bit about where it came from. Musically, we started working on it uh, uh, in Hamburg. We went to Germany. And we thought we were going to Hamburg for sort of city break writing experience. Didn't look hard enough at where the studio was and, and it was kind of more of a stalag really yeah. and uh, it was yeah and the border security were next door so you, you had a authentic sort of barking dogs as well on that <laughs> but it, it was pretty amazing this studio was incredibly well equipped and, and we got to talk about what we wanted to do but I didn't have any of my lyrical themes so it was based on all the grooves that we started working on were, were, were dark and repetitive and uh, um, and and I realised what this was this was this general sort of feeling of anxiety we're all fathers in the band and um, I'm not saying that we would have had less of an eye on the future of the country when we weren't but it definitely throws up different anxieties when you have children um, and then alongside that my father was dying of cancer um, he, he did die a year ago in March um, but then as we were working on this song as I was working on the lyric to it we also lost two close friends in Manchester both were music venue owners and Scott in particular, a very, very close friend, like Mark from the band was his best man, etc. So Scott was cruelly young, he died of cancer, but eight days later, almost one of his best friends, Jan, who ran the night and day cafe on Oldham Street, uh, died of a heart attack as well. So um, I carried two coffins and gave two eulogies in eight days. Uh, 
and the bewildering questions that come up when things like that happen, I was struck by the insignificant ones rather than, of course, questioning the whole of why life is and the universe is like it is. Um, I found myself wondering why Tuesday, uh, and um, and then also, and that's kind of the, the chorus of one of the songs. But the, these questions pepper the album. It, it doesn't. Uh, it asks a lot of questions and doesn't give very many answers. The Dexter and Sinister reference was imagining uh, the Manchester coat of arms. The figures on either side of a coat of arms are nicknamed Dexter and Sinister, which is from heraldry. It's the sides of a shield, left and right, literally. Uh, and I imagined the Manchester crest without its two figures, i.e. Scott and Jan. Um, the other thing that happened was my wife was in a play uh, in Chichester on the coast uh, where you can't buy the Guardian. Nobody stocks it. Uh, and I imagined sort of... Hellish. Just sort of <laughs> li lying on a pebbled beach and blistering in the sun until there's nothing left of me but powder. So uh, another cheery number, really. <laughs> It's a wedding disco banger, Dexter and Sinister. I haven't finished yet. Loss is a part of a life this long. But Dexter and Sinister. I've the heaviest heart jackhammering in me. Elbow with Dexter and Sinister from their forthcoming album, Giants of All Sizes. Guy, um, I remember well, I remember you being a very optimistic fellow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, that did happen. Um, during, the, during the referendum campaign, were you one of the people that, that felt that, uh, that Remain would, would win? Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my feelings about it now are um, I don't look at... Um, I don't look at Leavers as a very small-minded, small camp of people, or, and I know it's a very large camp of people, I don't see it as a, a misinformed camp of people either. What I see is 50%, over 50% of the country, um, willing to gamble everything on any kind of change. And I think however things end up, that's how we've got to look at it. We've got to open dialogue. Um, because human beings inherently don't like change they fear change this is why we're sat in this room uh, and for everybody to gamble on any kind of different future unless you believe that half the country's stupid which i don't um yeah i was blindly optimistic do you think that um because i've seen i've seen certain bands and some fairly mainstream bands like for example um uh, bastille at glastonbury had a very um a very kind of pro-Remain message one of their songs, and Dan Smith's been quite vocal about that. Mm. And there's there's a surprising number who wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think of as politically outspoken, and yet you there must of course be. It's not like every single fan of Bastille or Elbow is a is a Remainer. Do you feel that there is any any cost or danger to positioning yourself on one side of this big divisive issue, or do you think that fans? Uh, are just prone to being like, all right, I don't agree with the politics, but that's that's fine. I like the music, and it's really, really, yeah, it's completely case specific. I, I remember, for instance, uh, in the run up to the second war in Iraq, um, when the the huge demonstration took place, 
there was very few mus musicians willing to speak against it. Um, and again, naming no names, it was because they considered it anti-American and that they wanted success in America. Um, I remember that very clearly. Um, um, so yes, that's always been a factor. It's sort of like you don't want to alienate fans uh, on, on account of your politics. And also, if you, if you take a, a band of people that write together, you don't share the same politics, not word-specific. Uh, so um, I do check everything I write with the lads and where it comes from and what I'd probably end up saying about it. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that we have any right-wingers in the band. We certainly don't. But, but um, how, whether or not they're comfortable with a song becoming about my politics is... Yeah, it's just got to be right aesthetically. That's the point of writing music. You know, it's it's not my personal vehicle for my views. I saw the last time you played the O2, you brought back Leaders of the Free World, mm. which was a song that I wasn't always. It wasn't always in your set every mm. every time, and it was like, oh right, okay, so now this it kind of lives again. Yeah, because there's now like a it became, new bunch of leaders. Yeah, we did we did stop we did stop playing it during the Obama administration. Although one guy I know who worked for a banner, um, I met him in New York, and I, I thought I bet everybody waits for ages before asking him about his job, you know, and sort of gets round to it eekingly. So I thought I'm going in, guns blazing. I was like, so you work for the president? Did you help elect him? Yes. How do you feel about it? The thing I'm most proud of in my life. What do you do now? And I can't tell you what he did because that'll tell you who he was, and that's not very gentlemanly. <laughs> but he had. A job he had to justify to himself on a daily basis, morally. And uh, his whole take on the whole thing was, you need to remember that even the good guys are sociopaths. And when he said it, he banged all the beer off the table. Wow. Like a real furious thing. <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, is there a different way of doing it? I have to say I'm very suspicious if anyone puts their hand up and says, I can lead. Yeah. You know, it's like, does there have to be a different way of doing it? Somebody cleverer than me would have to come up with it. Well, aside from, from Roger Daltrey, have you come across any, any Brexity musicians who, who sort of don't like to talk about it? Or, is, or, or do you find the musical community is all virtually of one voice on this? As I was blindly optimistic in the run to the vote in the first, the, the referendum in the first place, I'm certain that there are uh, pro Brexit musicians. I'm sure there are. Um, don't tend to talk about it. I was on tour with my solo thing when the election results came out and the following day we were playing in Belgium and there was somebody stood on the front row with a, a great big cardboard sign that said, hey UK, this is what Europe looks like. Uh, and it was a great photograph, you know, with all these people reveling behind him. But I had to check with all the musicians on the stage about... Uh, what their politics were before I, I, I worked out how to let them know that nobody on the stage had voted that way. You know, it's a nice message generally. You know, every, every European gig we've done in the past few weeks, I've started with an introduction in that tongue, which ends with, sorry about the Brexit bullshit. You know, I think the worst thing, the worst outcome is if it collapses Europe, which is so very, very real, you know. Well, I think in the way that people often cite for some of the, the, the 2012 opening ceremony is this symbolic, not saying that Britain was absolutely fine then, because clearly not, but it was one of those sort of embracing, optimistic sort of mm. visions. And I definitely associate um, one day like this with both the ceremony and with that 
period. Um, does it feel that that kind of song, even because that was very personal, there's, there's things about in your personal life, does it feel that that kind of song is sort of inaccessible now? Like in terms of writing something in a in that purely kind of celebratory vein? Um, is it hard to write music that doesn't have some kind of dark shading now? Um, yes, yes. I mean, it depends. I also write soundtrack. And soundtrack, you get characters and a scenario, and you're allowed to access your, your join your relation. And, and you know, uh, no, I write positively all the time. But in terms of Elbow's output, which is my life's work, um, no, it, it, it would be very difficult now to write something purely optimistic it's you know and, and actually if anything um before we finished this record i was worried that the balance was was so dark and so but it is what it is you've got to be sort of be as honest as you can do, do you think music has like a utilitarian purpose as in you're like i want to cheer people up so i'm going to try and write an anthem that's going to be uh, obviously i imagine you can't do that you can't just do it to order and nor would you want to but is there a part of you that's like, I really, I feel a responsibility as an artist to... A, a situation can find a song and utilise it as an anthem, a unifying thing. I think that's, you know, yes, I think that, that's important and, and that happened. Uh, writing them to order for, for political purpose I don't think ever works, or very rarely. You'd have to go right back, actually. Mm. Woody Guthrie, etc. You know, uh there was a great piece in the New York Times this week about um, all the U.S. presidential candidates and the songs that they were all using to, um, you know, to walk on stage and all the. And it was it was really well done. Um, uh, do, they, do politicians use your songs for that purpose? Do they do, or do they try to? I hope not. rallies and that kind of thing. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't ever advocate it. Um, very early on, uh, we saw one of our songs, "Powder Blue," off our first album which has got a very melancholy piano arpeggio as its spine, being used over refugee footage. Uh, 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 and right. I, I, that that wasn't, you know... I'm, I'm uncomfortable about how often BBC drama deals with real issues. It's, it's like I, I hate the blurring of the lines between entertainment and reality. So we stopped that. We, we, we made sure that... Because the way publishing works is unless you want to be inundated every day with thousands of requests, they use it until you tell them to stop or, or you put a flag on your account with your publisher saying not to be used with real TV footage. We found out years later that that one flag had stopped our music being used for things that we would have been happy with, you know. Mm. So it's... But it's a really, you know, particularly... Particularly <laughs> yeah. now. So yeah. I would never want a political campaign. I, I don't know... a. a I don't know if anyone had ever allied himself to a politician publicly that hasn't regretted it afterwards. One new song, um, The Delayed, sounds like a picture of a, a left-behind town with a sense of, of, of general lostness. And I was thinking um, <clears throat> recently about what people mean by Brexit, music that evokes Brexit Britain, and a lot of the time it is, it's not obviously talking about, well, really, no deal or revoke. It's talking about Britain and sort of aspects of Britain that, that are not new, mm. this sort of lostness. So was that really important to have some kind of uh, empathy and awareness of like the soil from which this grew uh, it's, it's only in my 40s that I realised where I grew up uh, because I had an amazing family 
um, we never considered ourselves poor. Um, but I look at what they were working with, and we were. Uh, and where, where uh, I mean, the lyrics in question that sort of paint, uh, uh, um, spray paint swastikas and cocks, and that's the, like, the third lyric, that the whole song was uh, actually inspired by, uh, it's an, an, another wedding banger, it's a cheery one, uh, somebody went under the train I was on, and the bewildering question in, in those circumstances was, why this patch of track, which was pretty much like a lot of national railways, it's, it's just like a carved out bit of landfill. Um, and, and it is, yeah, I know the reason, it's because, you know, if, if you don't want to live, it's, uh, you don't choose a nice spot necessarily. But it's the fact that there was somebody underneath the train I was on and I was sat in first class and people were looking at the watches and tutting to one another, using it to make friends actually. And yeah, it seemed just too horrible not to write about. Has um, <clears throat> a lot of people have thought a lot more about identity uh, since 2016, um, and whether they feel because a lot of you, you have sort of multiple identities, and so do you feel sort of more sort of British or English or Anglo-Irish or, or European or like you know has it has it made you kind of because I I definitely thought about how I felt. And I thought, actually, I don't feel very English. You know, this mm. is probably why I feel so alienated from it, because I've never really thought myself. But it, but it took that to make me ask. How do you think of yourself? Um, I've got all kinds of hooks that I hang myself on. Uh, I'm a plastic paddy when it comes to St. Patrick's Day. Um, I always drink Guinness, and my wife pointed out how ridiculous it sounds when I say... And an Irish whiskey of your choice. But it was kind of, I've been doing it since I was 19. It was kind of like my shaken, not stirred, and I've stopped doing it now. Uh, I am, of course, fiercely Mancunian, as you know. Uh, and, um, and then, yeah, my mum said something very interesting. When I was asking her, uh, when I was on Des Island Discs, uh, I, uh, as, as a sort of warm up for this. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 Well, when I was, and they always ask about your parents and in some detail. So I phoned my mum and my dad and asked them how they would be happy to be described in terms of their beliefs and their politics. My mum's uh, a Catholic and she she a very spiritual lady. She said she didn't like the word religious, and she said I'm Catholic like I'm British. Uh, I'm very very proud while being thoroughly ashamed of some of the things we've done, and I thought that was a, quite a good way of doing it, and. Uh, that's exactly how I feel about being British. And there's lots of talk on all sides about bringing the country together. It's not a particularly partisan thing. Everybody would like to do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I suppose, because there's always that sense that uh, sort of, uh, of elbow shows of this sort of communality and, and sort of the generosity of bringing people together are probably easier to do in the O2 than across the length and breadth of Britain. <laughs> um, but do you think that that's... Um, does that seem possible at this point or is it too, is it is it a long way off before this divide gets uh, it's not going to make our shows a sort of um it, it's not going to be us holding a mirror up it's not going to be we're not going to suddenly throw black drapes over everything and you know it's like uh, because of the kind of music we've written at various times we've got loads of anthems and it was because uh we were stunned to hear a crowd sing our music for the first time so we wrote some anthems and the first ones we wrote uh were about 
love and it was in reaction to what was happening in Iraq and it was it was it was a reaction and uh, and that's what we became known for these anthems and stuff we still play those songs and if anything I think because there's five now four of us writing and we all share the responsibility and the input to the stuff it feels okay to share it with other people it doesn't feel like my music to, to any of us it, it, it's sort of so it's really easy to get lost in the party of uh, getting together with a load of people. But do you think the country as a whole is 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 a long way off from uh, something you would describe as sort of coming together? I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 it's very difficult to be optimistic at the minute. Well, we're going to play another uh, another pick me up from the album. <laughs> this is this is Empires with the refrain. It's very good. I should specify the album is very good. Uh, this is Empires with the refrain. Empires crumble all the time from giants of all sizes. It's the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule. So Guy Garvey gets to choose what goes into our buried cache of things we'll need or miss if we leave the EU. Uh, Kate Harry and Ian Duncan-Smith are trapped in there for all eternity, uh, but you don't have to talk to them. Guy, what's going in there? My adult life has been greatly enriched by two Polish guys called Jarek and Tomek. They're brothers that work uh, in and around my very sadly now dead friend, Scott Alexander's band, uh, uh, Bar Big Hands. Um, I'd never met any Polish people before these guys and as with many, many people who've enjoyed the freedom of movement uh, in my adult life, I, I know people from all over Europe thanks to that, um, but those two guys in particular, cult the cultural differences are endlessly entertaining for both them and me. Mm. Um, Tomek, for instance, was uh, on the towpath next to my... I, I rented a flat from my mate Pete that overlooked a canal in Manchester Lots of my friends have lived there. Um, and another friend of mine, a mosaic maker, stay with me, a mosaic maker called Mark, had, had made me a mosaic of Alan Bennett. Uh, this was because uh, I wanted to commission him. For, he makes a lot of money doing football badges in mosaic, and I wanted him to do something that he wanted to do. So I said, do me a mosaic. I've never commissioned a piece of art. Uh, so he asked around. I'd just finished reading a Bennett book, which I was talking about at the pub. So he did me this great big picture of Alan Bennett, which is fantastic. Um, and I hung it outside my apartment. A, a neighbour opposite, actually, the day it went up, for the first time across the canal, excuse me, excuse me. I was like, yes. And he's like, the painting. And I said, it's a mosaic, but yes. <laughs> very, very ominous, looking into my front room. <laughs> and I say, Alan Bennett is famously intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said... If I hear from you again, I'm going to strobe light it at night. <laughs> uh, anyway, Tomek saw it, uh, and, and I noticed that Tomek had been looking at me strangely a, a few nights in the pub. He'd just been looking at me oddly. Uh, and then eventually, when it was quiet, he sidled over to me and he went, pretty fucking strange, man. You've got a picture of yourself on your house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought it was more entertaining to pretend it was a picture of me. I was like, oh, oh, right, is that odd? I'll take it down. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so Yarrick and Tomek, my very dear friends. Now, in honour of um, Angela Merkel's 
Forbearance, it's the second German clip in a row to finish the show. This one from listener Daniel Gersh. Ich bin aus Deutschland. Dank der EU habe ich meine in Russland geborene Frau in Dänemark kennengelernt. Wir leben jetzt mit unseren zwei Kindern in London. Die EU hat uns auf eine Art und Weise zusammengebracht, die vor 80 Jahren kaum vorstellbar war. Lasst uns das nicht verlieren. That means I am German. Thanks to the EU, I met my Russian-born wife in Denmark and now live with her and our two British children in London. The EU has brought us together in a way that 80 years ago would have seemed impossible. Let's not lose this. Send in your European language clips, record something on your phone and email it to us at info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. Thanks to Ros and Ingrid and thanks to Guy Garvey for coming in. Cheers. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. Get your free download on their website, ampleplay.co.uk. It's thanks from me to Dina Godfrey, Phil Presley, Adrian Gown, Doug Young, John Barber, Kira Walker, David Murphy, Amit Kota, Robert Goff, Joe Kennedy, Francis Bleasdale and Jonathan Chapman. Hello and many thanks to Ross Campbell, Imogen Hardy, Kate Stone, David Whittam and the producer who's written in brackets here. He's a massive Doctor Who fan. So say something, Osgoody. Uh, Oh, Doctor, let's stop Brexit. There we go. Uh, Neil Wellard, Nick Knight, Michael Rigby, George Davis, Ima Ibong, Teodora Pimpinella, Mark and Darren Waddell. And finally, thanks for me to Terry Boone, Jill Douglas Mann, Anand and Monifa, Matt Perry, Ian Levy, Darren Griffin, Isabella Adamek, Bruce Stenning, Lynette Short, Linda Morgan, James Mulano and Chris Barker. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor and Ingrid Oliver. Audio production was by Elsie Bath at Soho Radio and the producer is me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.